0: Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all.
1: Hello everyone. I'm Dr. Andres Acosta, host of our series Obesity in GI Care: Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative. This series consists of 6 podcast episodes and 3 webinars which provide a comprehensive approach to diagnosing and treating obesity with a specific focus on patients with GI comorbidities. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the evaluation of patients' outcomes, adapting treatment plans, and the future of obesity management in patients who are going bariatric surgery. We're delighted to be joined by a world expert in bariatric surgery, Dr. John Morton. John is a medical director of the bariatric surgery for the Yale New Haven Health System and the vice chair for surgical quality for the Yale School of Medicine and the Yale New Haven System. He has been practicing bariatric surgery more than 18 years, ever since his surgical training, when he started to notice that patients who had serious medical problems before weight loss surgery discovered they no longer needed insulin, or hypertension medications after surgery. In addition to his clinical work, John has been a leader in the weight loss field on a national and international level. He's the past president of the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery and the current national chair for the Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery Accreditation and Quality Improvement Program, a collaboration between the American College of Surgeons and the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery for more than 800 hospitals. As a surgeon, scientist, He's internationally recognized for his research in both quality improvement in surgery and the metabolic effects of weight loss. His latter work includes the study of, that cover what has become known to be the halo effect of bariatric surgery, showing the impact from one person weight loss can have on the entire family. We're delighted to have John today, and we'll have a very nice conversation about bariatric surgery in the setting of obesity care. Before we start with John, I'm just going to throw the answer to the trivia question from the last episode. The question was, what GI tract organ does not have fat cells? And the answer is the esophagus. Every other organ in the GI tract has fat cells. So John, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with you today. I'm going to start with a question that we have been asking all our participants in the podcast. And I think it's very important to know to put everything in setting and in a context. What got you to be a bariatric surgeon? Why you decided to take this career and what to be where you are today.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Cost. It's an honor and privilege to be with you today on this podcast. For me, I started my academic career almost exactly the same time as the field of bariatric surgery really began in earnest since the 1960s, but very fringe. Starting around 2000 is where it really took off and, and is now the most popular, the most frequent elective GI surgery being done outside of hernias and gallbladders. So it's really become quite common. And I'm proud that I was part of the beginning to be present at the creation and also help build a field forward, get more acceptance, better quality, and ultimately better coverage from our insurers and acceptance from patients. So it could not have been planned out better for me in terms of when it started. And I have a public health interest. I have a master's degree in public health. I've always been interested in that. And you put surgery and public health together. This is an ideal marriage that results in bariatric surgery. So that's how I kind of got started. And I've been at it ever since. I've done now over 4,000 cases and pretty experienced with bariatric surgery. And I really view it as so important that we all work together to address obesity. And I'll tell you, I came into the field roughly about 20 years ago and I was a minimally invasive surgery fellow at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And at the time we were not doing bariatric surgery there and I'd heard about it. And I heard about it mainly that, boy, this is very difficult to do, it's very technical. So of course, being a surgeon, I wanted to do the hardest thing to show everybody I could do the technical part. And I'm always grateful to my uh, program director back at UNC. He sent me to do a couple of courses So I started out my own clinic. It was in a strip mall just outside of Chapel Hill. And one of my partners in the office was an endocrinologist. So we worked together. I started to do the cases. And yes, they were initially difficult. But then I started to see the patients when they came back. And it was incredible. We would stare at each other with open mouths when we saw patients come in who had been on insulin for years and no longer needed it. It was just, you know, eye-opening. Now, bariatric surgery had always been around, but not to a large degree. To give you one example, back when I started, we were doing less than 10,000 cases a year in the United States. Now we do close to 270,000 cases. So it's really grown a lot. And plus, there's been a a lot of popularity around it and interest. The other thing has changed so much has been the quality aspect of it. When I first started, the mortality rates were about 1% to 2%. Now, they're about 0.1%, so roughly about one out of 1,000 versus one out of 100. And I think it's been a large part to the accreditation and training. But for me, I caught the bug when it came to uh, seeing the results. About, I don't know, half a dozen years ago, I realized that I needed to have some additional tools because we currently only treat 1% of the affected population through surgery, So that means 99% of people aren't getting any treatment at all. And so I got boarded in obesity medicine and I also have uh, done a lot of endoscopy with some of the newer interventions like the intragastric balloon and then endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty. I had one of the biggest honors of my career this past year when I became a fellow for AGA. So to me, it really meant a lot. And in the course of doing all these things, I really wanted to see what can we bring to the table to help the patient? regardless of which intervention they're interested in. And as you can tell, this is something I'm, I'm really passionate about and care about. But thank you for the question, Dr. Costa. This is
1: fascinating. And I think your story resonates with many of us. That's the surgery. You are the ones who can have the most successful tool to help our patients address their obesity. And then, but you also recognize the importance of the team. Before we jump to surgery, I would love to maybe ask you a little bit more about the importance of the multidisciplinary team As someone who became obesity certified, someone who is adopting all these other
0: tools. How do you embrace everything and why you think that's so important? The reason it's important is because obesity is such a tough disease. It's a very difficult disease to treat. It has a high rate of prevalence, has a high rate of recurrence, and is often recalcitrant to different types of therapies. We know that dietary interventions can work if the stage of disease is quite low. If you've got 15, 20 pounds, sure, diets may work. But if your BMI is over 40, your ability to lose weight on your own is gonna be very, very limited. And it has nothing to do with willpower, nothing to do with psychology, it's pure physiology. And as a result, we've learned that we need to have all tools at our disposal. And that includes making full and liberal use of the healthcare team. For us in bariatric surgery, we realized early on, we have to teach patients how they eat afterwards that gets to the type of food they eat protein first, avoiding carbs, avoiding sugar. And the other thing is actually getting the food preparation. Believe it or not, many people in this country and maybe around the world really don't know how to prepare their meals or how to shop. They were too reliant on takeout. Here at Yale, at the center for healthy weight, we actually are creating a multidisciplinary group practice. With not only nutritionists and psychologists, but gastroenterologists who treat NASH, cardiologists who treat heart failure, and of course, endocrinologists who treat diabetes. And we're going to have a test kitchen inside the clinic. So we'll use that as a point of engagement with the community. But all the team members are really critical. And sometimes we get pushback from hospital insurers about like, wow, this costs money. Well, you know, there's a saying in Spanish, lo barato sale caro. And what that means is the cheap turns out to be expensive. So if you don't pay for it, you may end up paying for it later. Give you one example. When we combined our post-op visits, the surgeon with the nutritionist we reduced readmissions down to zero when they were related to diet because the nutritionists are truly expert in this area and they take time. The surgeon's got five, 10 minutes and they're able to go through it. But we published a study where we demonstrated that, that when the nutritionist is involved, less risk uh, readmissions related to diet. So the whole team truly matters.
1: I cannot agree more. And I'm fascinated to hear what you guys are doing at Yale. I think it's extremely important. And I really like your sentence as I, from Spanish speaking, use it very frequently. I think treating obesity prevents all the other diseases. And jumping into that, let's talk about the outcomes of bariatric surgery. It's been fascinating to see this really boom in the highest quality of evidence of bariatric surgery, telling us how patients have all the improvements we can imagine. So I would love to dive into
0: why bariatric surgery is a life-saving procedure. It truly is. And if you look at its effect on uh, mortality, it's right up there with things like, believe it or not, chemotherapy, vaccines, other life-saving interventions. There's been several studies now that demonstrate having bariatric surgery will increase your lifespan. So not only increases the quantity of your life, but it'll also increase the quality of your life. Simply put, it adds life to years and years to life. And the way it does it is really to remove the brakes. It takes the burden of disease off of those patients and reverses those years of decline and disease. It has its biggest impact, clearly, with diabetes, but hypertension is there. And one er other area that's really, truly fascinating that's emerged now is cancer. People have not associated obesity with cancer, but they do Mm -hmm. now. We realize that it's probably the leading preventable cause for cancer, probably getting very close with smoking now. And uh, we really do have to address it. And the impact that obesity has on cancer is not only its genesis, having it, but also the treatment gets impacted by obesity if you have cancer. And by that, I mean, if you do a cancer operation, it's harder to get a full resection. ASCO, American Society for Clinical Oncologists, found that 40% of patients who were obese and had chemotherapy got the wrong dose. And so it has very big impact. So if you get your weight down, you can improve that. I'm going to give you the latest member of the club to show improvement when it comes to disease, and that's COVID. A study just came out from Cleveland Clinic that demonstrated people who'd have bariatric surgery in comparison to people who did not reduce their risk of being hospitalized for COVID by 50%. That's pretty good. It underscores that there are two big risk factors for COVID. One is age, and the other one's weight. Mm -hmm. Can't change how old we are, but we can change how much we weigh. So we can impact all that. And final point about the life expectancy studies, the Ted Adams study out of New England Journal of Medicine saw roughly about a 40% decline in mortality that was carried out all the way to 12 years. So it's a pretty significant decline. And it has to do with relieving burden of disease. And I think when people lose that weight, they're going to seek out care more often. The other untold story in all this is that patients who carry extra weight don't often seek out care from the medical community. And as a result, they present too late in their treatment. So I think bringing bariatric surgery sometimes is the door, the portal of entry into medical care for a lot of our patients. So fascinating, right? And it's just to highlight to our listeners, decrease in mortality,
1: decrease in cardiovascular disease, Increasing life expectancy, and then improvement to resolution of diabetes, hypertension, NASH, GERD, if you do the right procedure, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and many other things now, including COVID. So now let me throw you a difficult question. Is it the surgery itself, or is the weight loss that has these benefits?
0: Well, at the end of the day, I'm grateful for whatever it might be. The weight loss is what gives you improvements in your comorbidities. The surgery is what makes it enduring, if you know what I mean. So yeah. you get that initial result, but surgery is what keeps it there. And you talk to patients. Many, many patients have lost hundreds of pounds only to see them come back. Weight maintenance is almost yeah. as important as weight loss. And so I think that's probably the biggest benefit to surgery is it does have lasting power. We've got now studies that are 20 years old from the Swedish obese subjects trial it doesn't mean the surgery, the surgery completely removes any chance of weight regain because it can happen. It can happen if the surgery wasn't performed properly or if patients don't follow lifestyle modification, or maybe they have iatrogenic obesity from new medications that make them gain weight. There's a lot of things that come into play. But the key to it is if you're starting to regain weight, come back and see the surgeon or whoever it is that you're seeing for your care because it's easier to care for an increase of 15 pounds than it is 100, because we can nip things in the bud through some common sense solutions. They could be dietary, they could be cognitive behavioral therapy, they could be medications, and in some cases, revisional surgery. So we do have tools at our disposal to kind of help patients with that.
1: I think it's very important what you mentioned about the long-term effects on weight maintenance, uh, because Patients can lose weight because of many reasons, but we see the metabolic changes that are happening after surgery that are making this durable effect. And maybe that's the reason. I think we'll have to see those studies and how those studies evolve, particularly the long-term studies, but we'll see if it's weight or surgery, but clearly the effects of surgery are been beneficial. Something you, you mentioned that I think is important to highlight is in your initial introduction, you saw the transition from procedures and surgeries that had higher frequency of complications of adverse events despite of all the benefits and now that's changing and many of us who probably read a book or a manuscript that included those complications maybe we're ingrained in this one percent risk of mortality but now you tell us different so can you tell us a lot more about those for our listeners to say the numbers are different now we're talking about more safer procedures than what initially they were
0: I think there's been several advances in obesity treatment. And I think probably the biggest one is the increase in safety when it comes to surgery. And we saw a huge change, almost a hundredfold change to go from one out of a hundred to one out of a thousand. So big, big changes there. And how did it happen? Well, you know, there was recognition. That there were more complications. I firmly believe that the fact that we do it laparoscopically has helped in the old days when they did it with the open procedures, it was hard to see, frankly, and hard to get exposure, but laparoscopically you have a a great view and you can see it. Preparing the patient for surgery is another big, I think, advance. And part of it is not having them gain weight before surgery, because if you gain weight, that increases risk of complication, making them stop smoking get their blood sugar under better control. All of the prehabilitation that we do prior to surgery helps. Training. It used to be patients uh, or surgeons would come in and do a weekend course and on Monday do the case. We don't do that in surgery anymore anywhere. But I think that really laid the uh, framework for the future. And I think the accreditation program made a huge difference. There are certain hallmarks to the accreditation program First, you have to keep your results. You have to have a registry and it's not put in by the surgeons because surgeons will never have a complication if they have to write it down themselves. But what we have is a third party who reviews the data and puts in uh, the data. So there's an old saying when it comes to quality, you can't manage what you don't measure. So we're measuring every case that we do, 100% capture. the other thing is that there are standards in place. And the standards include everything from doing a certain number of cases because we know volume is tied to better outcome the other thing that's in there is having resources in place the right kind of beds the right kind of chairs the right kind of resources to rescue a patient if there is a complication so that's part of it the other thing that we did when we started at equip is we had a requirement that each program have a quality improvement program annually And I think that's really made a big difference. The study just recently published in the past month, I believe, demonstrated that our quality has not stayed static. It's actually continued to improve in the last five years. So things are getting a lot safer. The other thing that we have to recognize, too, is there's been a shift in procedures. We're doing procedures now that are probably less risky than we did uh, 20 years ago. The gastric bypass is a very safe procedure, but it does have a higher rate of complication than the sleeve gastrectomy, which is now two thirds of the procedures we do in the US. The band, which had a higher rate of reoperation, is really no longer performed very much at all in the United States. So I think the shift has changed. And the result has been now that bariatric surgery is as safe as removal of a gallbladder or hip or knee replacement you know, as I mentioned, the mortality rates is 0.1%. It's actually less than parasophageal hernia repair.
1: Yeah, that is impressive. And I think that number needs to resonate with everyone who is part of a multidisciplinary program, because when we explain this to patients, we don't need to say, yeah, surgery is great, but it's risky because now we're talking that the risk compared to the benefits, I think we put those things in balance. When you are part of a multi team, How do you translate this message to the rest of your colleagues? What's the discussion? How this goes?
0: Well, I believe that sunshine is the best disinfectant. By that I mean you should be transparent in what you do. So everybody on the team, nurses, dietitians, psychologists, obesity medicine specialists are all part of a single committee. And that committee meets quarterly to review all of our results. That is a requirement again through MBSA Quip, the accreditation. Program. The other thing that we do within our program here at Yale is that we meet weekly and we meet weekly to review the upcoming cases. One pretty neat thing that we did with MBSA Quip is we created a risk-benefit calculator. And you can go online and find it. MBSA Quip risk risk calculator also gives you benefit. So you put in patient level data, their age, gender, BMI, and it'll tell you what the risk of the surgery is, but also how much weight you're going to lose. And then you can compare the procedures at the same time. Like if you're not sure, should I do the bypass? Should I do the sleeve? This is a great. Clinical decision tool that you can use, and you can make that decision with your patient. And I use that a lot. And so we review all the cases that way. All the cases have their risk calculated, and that way we review them once a week. And the entire healthcare team is there uh, for us to kind of review things. So they know exactly our rate of complication. Mm -hmm. So that helps out. And knock on wood, we don't have mortalities. But that's how we get the message across: is by everybody working together. And it's more than just giving information to them, they can inform us too. That way we have continuous quality improvement and we feed it back to the team or whatever the case might be for the psychologist as well. But I'm a big believer in in having everybody at the table. It really helps out.
1: Kudos to you and everyone who has led these accreditation programs and tracking their outcomes because it's been a great way to know, understand and improve. So it's fascinating. And I think we all need to learn from that. So let's move to What's coming in the future? So What is exciting you? What's new? What's going to happen in the field of the bariatric surgery?
0: Well, I think the future for bariatric surgery is bright. We see you know, increased interest in surgery now after COVID. We saw an upswing because I think people got the message that if you carry extra weight, it puts you at risk for having complications from COVID. So they're looking to decrease their weight. I think our numbers will increase. I think we've already done a very good job about messaging to patients. I think our next frontier is frankly messaging to our colleagues in medicine and in in the entire house of medicine. We need to get the message out to gastroenterologists that we can help with NASH. We need to get the message out to the cardiologists that we can help heart failure. Obviously the endocrinologists know about what we do when it comes to diabetes fertility for our GYN colleagues. It's literally from head to toe. So I think we need to get the message out to the medical community that we're safe and effective and available. I don't think the sleeve is gonna go away. I think the sleeve is here to stay and the patients have voted with their feet. They've really made it the dominant procedure. And intuitively, it is a very straightforward procedure, but deceptively so. There's a lot that goes on with the sleeve. When you remove that portion of the stomach, you remove where ghrelin, the hunger hormone is made by virtue of making the stomach smaller. That way you increase transit to the GI tract, which upregulates GLP-1. The bypass will always play a role. In many ways, it's been a gold standard for us, particularly when it comes to treating diabetes. For patients with bad acid reflux, it remains a procedure of choice. Now, we don't rely simply on symptoms. That's like flipping a coin. 50% of the time, you'll be right. And I think probably the biggest thing that we need to do is quantify for the future who has reflux, who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Are we to the point now that we're going to ask everybody to get a pH probe? Not sure yet, but we're certainly moving in in the direction of getting more data. What uh, we do in our practice is we scope everyone prior to surgery. And in that way, we can really get an idea if there's anything going on, masses, what ulcers, whatever it might be, or if there's any stigmata of reflux. In my practice, if they have grade C esophagitis or greater, we don't do a sleeve. If they have obviously Barrett's, we don't do a sleeve. Yeah. So those are some of the ways that we look at it. The newest procedure for us is called the SADI, the Single Anastomosis Duodenal Switch Operation. And really what it does is it bypasses, you know, a good portion of the intestine. Unlike the other procedures, it's truly malabsorptive. It has very good results for weight loss and for diabetes, but like anything else, you know, with great effect, there can be potential risk. And some of the risk involved with it is around protein malnourishment and vitamin deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So I personally reserve that operation for people that don't have a lot of other options. I think actually one of the most interesting things that's coming down the road is gonna be multimodality therapy in treating obesity with surgery. And I take a page from cancer. We know cancer is a systemic disease, right? So we used to think surgery is gonna cure everything. It won't if you still have cancer cells distal. And that's where the idea came about adjuvant chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. that you will condition the patient so they get a better response. I think we're gonna see the same thing happen for us in bariatric surgery. If we did just patients who had BMIs under 45, we'd have excellent effect rate and little recurrence of weight. Where we have problems is with those larger patients. Mm -hmm. Mama of the belief is we can downstage those patients prior to surgery with medications. And there's some good ones now we're gonna have better results down the road. Extending the cancer analogy, if there's a weight recurrence, We can add medications just like we do now if there's a recurrence of a cancer. But I think the biggest thing when it comes to recurrence is really to place it in disease terms. Never want to use things like failure. It's really because of physiology, not because lack of diligence. So I think those are going to be the things upcoming. Thank you for sharing that. Important about these
1: more advanced procedures or more aggressive procedures, if that's the right term. What are your thoughts about other selection criteria for patients and there is certain calculators out there Mm -hmm. about how to select patients, particularly for diabetes remission. And I would love to get your thoughts there with a full disclosure that my research is in precision medicine, and I'm trying to find what are the best responders for each patient. So any thoughts on the current ongoing risk calculators that there is for remission of diabetes, but also what do you think is going to be the role for other things such as genetics, microbiome, Mm -hmm. and other potential predictors for bariatric surgery as we know they change after surgery?
0: Well, you bring up a good point, which is variation in in treatment effect. We certainly see a lot of variation after diets. There's variation after medication and there is variation after surgery. So what we want to do is to eliminate some of that variation. That's the key to quality. Currently, there's not a lot of great predictors to tell you this patient is going to do well or not do well. There's some general ones. Older patients tend not to lose as much weight diabetic patients tend not to lose as much weight, particularly if you're taking insulin. People on antidepressants don't lose as much weight unless you're on Welbutrin, which helps promote Mm -hmm. weight loss. But probably the biggest predictor is stage of disease. If your BMI is over 50, you're not going to lose as much weight proportionally as someone who's got a lower BMI and you have a greater risk of recurrence. So again, it's a lot of cancer. That's Mm -hmm. like a stage four cancer where you got disseminated cancer, in this case, disseminated obesity harder to eradicate. The diabetes calculators, I think are actually pretty decent. The biggest predictors are duration of your diabetes, as well as if you're on insulin, some people use C peptide as well to help predict it. And again, age does play a role in it, but it appears the bypass is better than the sleeve in most circumstances, but we have real world data with the MBSA equipment calculator and you can put in the data and you'll find out how close it is and that way you'll you can make a more informed decision so wonderful and john
1: will ask you for that calculator the link so we can put it on the website so let's transition because there's a lot of excitement there's a lot of use surgery but we're still doing surgery in less than one percent of the patients who qualify for surgery and for us who continue to see the trends of obesity increasing despite of working on this day and night do you think is going to be a long-term solution what do you see in the landscape there and will we be able to revert this epidemic
0: well i think one of the things we're going to have to look at is like who should be treated how are we going to prioritize because when you have a third of the country overweight it's hard makes everybody go like goodness how are we going to treat everybody but you start to focus and the place you focus in on is the bmi the comorbidities and then you look at rate of return where you get the most treatment effect in probably the most treatment effect is around our diabetics, people with sleep apnea, people with NASH. Those are going to in hypertension and cardiac disease. Those are probably our top five. So I think those are places that we could certainly start. I think there's some things that inhibit patients from coming to surgery. One is we've already talked about is the safety part of it, but there's also things that inhibit physicians from referring. And that is, you know, maybe having outdated views around the quality part of it, um, but also concern that these patients may regain their weight. And that's something that we really should address. I think the key to that is follow-up and continuity of care. And I think the future is likely going to be specialized centers that are multidisciplinary in nature, where they have surgeons, along with gastroenterologists who treat NASH, cardiologists who treat heart disease, even pediatricians. So you can have an intergenerational clinic and you treat the whole family. A lot of doctors don't want to necessarily treat obesity because they feel nothing works and they feel they don't have time to address all those issues that come up. We're kind of right now in the best of times and in the worst of times. In many ways, this is the best of times because we have all the tools at our disposal. Surgery works. It's safe and effective. We have a drug now that's been FDA approved that uh, has phenomenal results with a very good safety profile. We have a lot of hospitals accredited for bariatric surgery. We have obesity medicine specialists that are growing. So we have all of those there. I think what we need to do is frankly get the word out and be available have those specialized centers. So it doesn't matter what you have, you go to those centers, we'll take care of you. If it's after surgery, we're going to follow you. We can do that. I think maybe some of the telemedicine stuff that all of us have been doing with COVID might save us because that might be an easier way for us to get follow-up. Some of the digital scales may help us out a lot too, where they're Wi-Fi enabled and we get that data back. Don't forget that weighing yourself is both diagnostic and therapeutic. You know, the more often you weigh yourself, the more often you keep your weight down. And even some of the Fitbit stuff can help out quite a bit, the activity trackers. Because they can give us an idea of exercise as well as sleep. So I think right now it seems daunting, but we really have all the tools at our disposal. And what we need to do is get organized. I would love to see some effort at the federal level with the government. All the money we spent on COVID You know we should be spending some money on one of the big reasons we got COVID, which is being overweight. So I think that's a a place to start: is having some federal policy around it. Specialized centers will help, but societies like AGA, ASGE, promoting treatment of obesity, all that is going to help out a lot. Keep in mind that medicine is a a very conservative field, and it takes a long time to get people to to get around new concepts. The estimate is seventeen years. So I think we're just kind of getting started. You mentioned we're in the best times and the worst times.
1: What do you think is the part that is making us the most difficult times for us?
0: I think the fact that the worst of times is that our obesity rates have never been higher. Yeah. After all of our talking about this is important, we need to treat it. They can have continued to go up. The pandemic did us no favors. We talk about the freshman 15 that people get when they go off to college. Well, there was a pandemic 30. That was the estimate from Kaiser about people gaining weight. And I think the bill came due when we saw COVID hit the United States. It hit it a lot harder than any other country in the world. And I do believe it's because of our weight. That's why we had worse outcomes. I think that's where I say it's the worst of times. The other thing, like I said, is we have a lot of gifted practitioners out there uh, but we need to organize this on a higher level with the insurance companies and with the uh, federal government. A lot of the insurance companies have taken it upon themselves to create centers of excellence for bariatric surgery. I think they need to do the same sort of thing when it comes to obesity medicine, too, to really promote it. And within MBS we actually have a structure for that. They coexist. So we have our medicine arm. And we've got our surgery arm within the accreditation. You can get accredited in an obesity medicine designation as well within MBSA-QIP. So I think all those are things that could potentially help, but it's right now a big challenge, but we need a, a lot more direction. I'd like to see the federal government say something to the effect that they encourage people to have bariatric surgery because they've seen those good effects. They do similar types of encouragement when it comes to things like people who are on dialysis, and they encourage people to get transplanted. There's a whole, you know, informational campaigns about that and I think I'd like to see the same thing happen for us.
1: Yeah, you raise such an important point. The the information is to be coming probably from the federal government tricking down, but at the same time, there's so much we can do within our societies and within our different organizations. So that's all fascinating. And that probably led me to the last question, which is, how much do you think is the stigma of obesity, which is slowing down the adoption of first acknowledging obesity as a disease, but also created then the policies and the infrastructure to really adopt this kind of more nationwide approach to obesity and and the complication of the epidemic of obesity?
0: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's still a lot of stigma around obesity and the stigma extends to the patient who feels ashamed and doesn't seek care. There's stigma from our physician community that obesity is a self-generated disease and that patients should take care of it themselves. They also aren't aware of the treatment options that are available, but that could change. I think it can change through better awareness. We would not let someone who's got high blood pressure go untreated. As a result, we should make sure that someone who's got obesity gets treated or at least has their treatment options outlined to them. About 20 years ago, people talked about the fifth vital sign, which was pain. We know that that didn't work out, but the fifth vital sign now should be BMI because it is bedrock to good health. We know that as your BMI goes up, you have worse health, and we now have options for it. There are some states, some federal policies that say if you have breast cancer and you get a mastectomy, your doctor has to go over what are your options for reconstruction. It's a quality indicator. I would like to see that for patients who have a BMI over 30 or 35 or 40 or whatever we might pick, where you have to go over some of the treatment options that are available. Patients can still decline, but let's at least give them a chance to access care. So I'd like to see that happen because that would go a long way to removing the stigma because you're saying that this is important and should get treated. And the last part of it is it's not your fault. People still think that maybe you do think it's their fault, but have we not dealt with diseases like that in medicine? For Mm -hmm. example, people who drink too much, you know, end up hurting their liver or their pancreas, we still treat them. We don't tell them like, hey, you did that to yourself. Good luck. We don't do that to the lung cancer patient who smoked. We still treat them. So we do need to work on getting this better awareness up. I think the other part of it, too, is a lack of awareness of how severe obesity really is and its impact. We have to continue to sound the bell on that because it's kind of a slow moving epidemic you don't die immediately of obesity it takes time and i think that's part of the reason too it's just dynamically people don't see the harm it causes one thing i'd like to see happen is that in all the corners in the united states write down obesity as a reason why someone passed away and then we can track it better when we do these uh, cdc uh, morbidity and mortality reports and we can really see the true impact of weight yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely You nail it back when you said the fifth vital sign should be your BMI. It's clear that it's something that if any physician or provider ignores a heart rate, ignores blood pressure rate, ignores the respiratory rate, a pulse ox, right? They could be liable. Mm -hmm. And I really like Mm -hmm. that. So why we don't bring BMI, as as I say? You know, we talk a lot about pain, as you clearly made, in the last few decades, and we think we overdid it, but we still help a lot of patients. It's something that we need to bring to the table. And I understand that before we could ignore it, but now we have, you know, registered dietitians. We have obesity medicine experts with different tools, five FDA-approved medications. We have bariatric procedures, including surgery and endoscopies. And all these tools and working together and centers of excellence and safety and the FDA has been on top of all of us. So there's no reason why we should continue to ignore the fifth vital sign as you very said. Nice. So I completely agree, completely agree with you. And I think we will leave it there. But this has been fascinating. I just need to highlight to our listeners all the benefits we have from bariatric surgery, how safe now is this procedure. And those of us who are in the, maybe the GI wards, we may have the experience of that one patient without a complication. But we need to think there's thousands of patients, 270,000 or more patients who are getting surgery and not having complications. So all these impressive benefits that we are seeing with surgery. So Dr. Morton, thank you so much for your time and enlightening us in this very interesting conversation. It's been a real pleasure to
0: chat with you. It's been my pleasure. So thank you very much, Dr. Costa. Look forward to seeing everybody out there treating obesity. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for tuning
1: in to today's episode, which is the episode five or six in our series, Obesity in GI Care, Start the Conversation, Change the Narrative, which is made possible by unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordics. Special thanks one more time to our guest today, Dr. John Morton. For our listening audience, I'd like to bring to our obesity trivia question, is why do men have a different metabolic rate than women? Keep listening to our series for the answer to this factor in our next episode, in our next episode, we'll discuss evaluating obesity coding and reimbursement, as well as further reflect on what our special guests have taught us about the future of obesity care. For additional resources from this program, including the release of additional podcast episodes and webinars, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thank you very much, Dr. Morton, and it's been a delight to chat with you. And thank you everyone for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA university at agau.gastro.org.